Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Annie and Kate. Hi, Annie, and welcome to our guest, Gemma Carey. Gemma is a, an author and a researcher at the University of New South Wales. She has written for The Guardian, Mianjin, Canberra Times, and she's also been on radio and NPR. And as a writer, her goal is to capture hard life experiences, grief, loss, and trauma, and turn them into something beautiful. So welcome, Gemma, and um, probably the most important thing, what are we drinking? Thank you for having me, and I'm drinking a gin cocktail. Nice. What sort of gin do you have, Gemma? I've got Poor Tom's, which is oh, a Sydney no. gin. No, no, that's a, that's a good gin. I like Poor Tom's. Um, so I have a very tasty, I just took a sneaky sip of it, uh, a Tasmanian Syrah. I didn't know Tasmania did Syrahs. This is an interesting moment. It's very tasty. Oh, that's good. And I've got gin and tonic, uh, Bombay Sapphire. A good yes. sport of a gin. And mercifully, because I'm not in the office, I don't have to drink that last can of Gordon's gin and tonic that is still in the fridge. <laughs> it's, it must have been there for about four weeks now, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, I was in yesterday and I saw it there and I was like, yeah, I don't want to drink that. Well, look, it's in a can. It's not going to go off. Precisely. Go there. I'd totally go there. <laughs> you, you never know when you're going to need an emergency gin and tonic in the <laughs> office. I think it should stay there for a while. Actually, an emergency gin and tonic kit is a really good idea. And I feel like almost know. every gin and tonic is an emergency gin and tonic in my life. But anyway. <laughs> well, it was this afternoon. I We had drinks for some colleagues who were leaving us and I was really glad to have a drink at four o'clock today. Is it, there's no judging in 2020. It's what I keep saying to people when they disclose their like secret shames to me. I'm like, we don't judge in 2020. You do what you got to do to get through. I think that's a really admirable attitude. Yeah. <laughs> It is, and, and I can I get you to just ring me in the morning, Gemma, with that? <laughs> Make sure that I don't feel so bad that I'm just wearing my stretchy pants for another day in a row. I'm wearing a onesie right now. Good work. It's no judgment, 2020. <laughs> I'm going to, we need to make that a sound bite that carry around on our phones with us, something. <laughs> Great. Annie, do you want to go first with one of the questions? I do, I do. I was going to go with something very, you know, sort of sensible and laudable, um, but I'm actually going to go with one of, and, and this is this is turning out to be, I think, one of the most interesting questions that we've asked to some of our previous podcast guests, which is, what is the one thing that you've done that you will never do again? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Just one. Oh. I feel like you should have said this to me in advance. I could mull over the, the multitude of options. All right, you can give um, the top three if you'd like. I, I might go with my my top three. Okay. Um, I would not jump off a 25-foot bridge and break a rib. Okay. There's a story <laughs> we're going to ask a question about again later. Um. I would try not to find out my seven-year-old father was sleeping with a 28-year-old. Okay. <laughs> and I would try not to leave a job at university in 
a giant blaze of glory. <laughs> Ooh, I think I want to follow up on that one most. <laughs> what was the blaze of glory? What did he, what happened? Oh, um, yeah, how public will this be? I, I will not name names and I will not name the university. Um, I was accused of plagiarizing for a piece of work that I did before I actually came to the job at the university, so I couldn't have been plagiarized. Uh, and on my way out the door to another job, I, I made sure that a 30-page complaint detailing all of that went right up to the Vice-Chancellor. I gather it's still spoken about to this day. That is a blaze of glory. I love it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have this suspicion, and by the way, we're, we're speaking to you know two women who are you know, um, very you know sort of well accredited women within universities in Australia. I had no idea how much you know sort of nonsense goes on within that particular sector. It's like. I don't actually understand why there hasn't been some sort of reality TV show about it yet. It would make a good one, right? I mean, you could certainly have a, quite a lot of sex scandals going on in your, your university reality TV show. Well, there, there, was a, there was a vice chancellor that's just been fired at another university interstate because of sexual harassment. That's my alma mater. Yeah. Um, Adelaide Uni. And um, the interesting thing about that actually is uh, I never had him as a lecturer, but when I was an undergrad, um, everybody knew that you stayed away from him. He was the lecturer at the time. He rose a very long way with a lot of bad behaviour. And, and he was at another university in another southern state and another southern state below that state. And the stories are the same everywhere. And it's no surprise to anybody. It's just now I think the universities are kind of having their own Me Too moment where this kind of thing does get taken seriously, which is much better. But that, that's a pretty legendary exit. Mm-hmm. His or mine? Yours, yours. His, well, his, <laughs> his is just well-deserved. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, so what's your question, Kate? Well, I'm wondering if you could go back and tell your younger self one thing, what would it be? That's one I've actually thought um, a lot about and not to be blatantly kind of publicising my own work, um, but I think you both know that I had a memoir come out this week um, and it's a memoir um, that tells a couple of different stories. One is about my mum dying young of cancer and me caring for her and the other one is about taking a man to court for child sexual abuse when I was 17. So the thing, not to get too heavy on you, that I would go back and tell my younger self is to stay away from the man who sexually abused me as a child. Good fucking advice right there. Yeah, yeah. Solid advice. Solid, Solid advice. Solid advice. Hey, and, and look, as um, without going into the, the details and the ins and the outs, um, I, I went through some childhood sexual abuse as well. And I don't know, I don't know about you. So this is a follow-up question, I guess, in a, the broadest sense of, um, I was really young when it happened to me. So it sort of felt a bit like, it wasn't really me that it happened to because the time I grew up and decided how I wanted to be, the things that happened in the past, I sort of almost felt like a distant memory. 
Um, so it never has impacted me in terms of, you know, portraying myself or putting myself forward for who I wanted to be or, or having confidence. Um, how did it impact you? I think I would have said exactly the same as you until my mother started to die. So I thought that I had dealt with it all and it was behind me and I'd gotten over it and I had a PhD and everything was great and had a beautiful middle-class life when I owned a house and was married and all of that. And then my mum started to die and I, it brought it all back up again. And I realized actually I, I hadn't dealt with it um, fully at all. And, and then I went through this kind of process of sense-making and that turned into a, a whole book in fact, um, so I'd like to say now that I'm over it, but I'm a little hesitant to even say that given I would have <laughs> said that for many years before I ended up writing a book about it. So, And what led you to write the book? Um, I didn't mean to write a book. I just started writing about it um, and what was going on as, as my mum died uh, and it grew and grew and then sort of became, it became a book Um yeah, and then writer friends of mine and, and my writer husband said, no, 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 this is a book. This isn't just your, your catharsis. Um, so, yeah, then I pursued publication of it. So cool. It's been, I think, you know, because you're both from universities, like I think it opens up a really interesting tension and one that's sort of exploded on me already a couple of times, which is, you know, as academics and researchers, we're so often told that we can't be more than our research and we can't be more than our career you know, to have other interests, let alone to write in, um, you know, a dramatically different semi-creative memoirist field uh, and reveal things about ourselves and, and, you know, academics. I think institutionally we're very, you know, keep it all inside. Um, so I think, like, I, I've written memoir outside of this book in essays in The Guardian and different places, as was read out in the bio, um, which has caused friction with um, some older academics who, who felt really uncomfortable saying, I, I don't really like having to read about things that have happened to you or your feelings. I'm like, well, you don't have to read it just because it's You're there. forcing them to read it. You're <laughs> holding them down, forcing them to read it. It's a choice. Um, so I sort of, you know, it only happened this week, but I... I I've had a little bit of taste of it and, and I wonder how it will be to kind of I describe it as like, you know, be my whole self within the academy, within the institution truly for the first time uh, and how that's going to go. But I also, you know, I'm, I'm speaking from a, a tenured position of safety, even amongst the destruction of our sector um, where I can take risky steps like that. And I know that there's a lot of, you know, more precarious academics out there who can't right now. Mm. So what, what do you think it was about, about your mother passing away that, that started to precipitate that? Was it? It was that my mother knew and didn't do anything. Oh, right. And we never talked about it. Yeah. Right. So the first half of the book is, is kind of my mother dying and me grappling with, do I ask, do I not ask, how do I, how do I deal with this? And also how do I, like, I was her primary carer while she was dying. So how do I care for this? person um through very very kind of difficult very difficult death from cancer while also holding this sort of betrayal with her and then the second half of the book is is sort of everything that happened after she died and all the sort of things that came to light about her life that made a lot more kind of made helped make sense of of why she had done what she had done 
I really just took you both like right into the. No, no, that's, that's, <laughs> it's going wherever you wanted to go. So I'm, I'm finding it real fascinating. Life. Well, right, that's real life. It's not, you know, you can't artifice this. It's, it's just, that's how it goes. And it is kind of messy. Like nobody's life is perfect. Mm. And everybody's got a, their own story. Um, but but you're you're luckily very articulate and you can tell your stories in really nice ways, really interesting ways. Thank you. I think as well, like I, I hope, I hope, I hope um, that there's, you know, an extra bit of, I don't know, power's not the right word, but something like that, um, about having successful women tell stories that are you know that they've been through trauma and it's been messy and like I talk a lot in the book about like you know I've been a real fuck up at points in my life as well um yet here I am you know I I became a tenured associate professor at 32 you know like you can overcome it look I overcame it um so I hope I, I sort of always say that like I wrote the book that I probably needed to read when I was younger um that's a nice way of putting it yeah so if you going back to you know, sort of perhaps when you were in the thick of it and now you are where you are, um, what was it that helped you to, to sort of navigate out of that messy period into, you know, sort of a, a really successful career? I think probably um, a lot like you, Annie, I, I just divorced myself from my earlier past um, and just got on with it. And, and I think I also did a lot of things to sort of be like, I am doing this despite what happened. Uh, and, and it wasn't until a much later point that I was able to integrate those things and begin to also do things that aren't to, you know, they're not despite what happened um, or to spite anyone, the person who abused me or my mother and her betrayal or anything that is actually just living for me. Like that's, that's, the, that's the thing that we all hope to do, you know, integrate all those parts of ourselves and live our lives, our own lives, you know, apart from everybody else. Well, what, what, would, what would you say to your younger self? Like, I mean, would you, would you give a specific advice or would you give more generic advice about the kind of people that you need to watch out for? There's this um, book that came out like, just two weeks ago by Carmen. I can't remember her last name, but it's called A Dream House. And she has this scene in it, um, a little section in it, where she talks about, like, what if you could break through the kind of wall of time and, and go into your childhood bedroom and sit your childhood self down and say that this and this and this is going to happen and you need to not do these things. Like, would you listen to yourself? Um, and... Like, I loved it when I read that because I've thought that so much. Like, could I just break through the wall of time and go back and say, do not do these things? And she makes this point of kind of like, well, there were people around you at the time who told you not to do that. You had all your friends who told you not to do that and you did it anyway. What makes you think that, you know, you're going to listen to some, you know, older version of yourself that's somehow broken through, like, space-time continuum? Um, But we fantasise about such strange things. Um, I think... I think I would tell myself not just to stay away from that person, but I would also try and tell myself that you have value outside of the gaze of men and you have value outside of, you know, whether somebody finds you sexually desirable or not um, and, and pursue and, and value those parts of yourself because that's part of growing up in a patriarchy, right, is we kind of get assumed into um, 
yeah valuing well, things we, we, we don't even realize it and and it's only when you when you're sort of approaching 40 that you look back and you realize how patriarchy has infiltrated every part of your life um you know so so essentially it might not even be possible to see it from the perspective mm. of, a, of a young person i couldn't agree more and i think before you know as we're obviously thinking about how conversation may spark conversation once it gets shared we are not saying all men we are saying that you know that the construct of society that we live in forces women to think and act and respond in, in ways that that make sense to men it's not that we want to do it it's not that it's that men want us to do it. It's just, it is what it is. And, and, and it's a fascinating construct when you start to question it more. Um, whether it's, so I remember when I first started to stop wearing dresses and skirts to the office and I started wearing, yeah, more kind of like slacks trousers and a pair of flip flops and the amount of comments. You I know, got, we call them thongs Annie. They're flip-flops. I will never call them flip Also, you were ahead of your time if you were doing that before 2020. Oh, I really was. I've been doing it since 2011, I think it was. Um, I'm just really lazy. I just don't. And also, I hate socks. I think socks are the devil's work. Um, my feet need to be free. It just needs to be free and breathing. Anyway, that's very much beside the point. <laughs> my husband has just snuck in and brought me some chips oh, are, they your, are they made with your incredible air fryer kit? yes yes made with the air fryer <laughs> Sorry. About apparently that. what he was trying to get in and give me well look that's that's a very good gift the gift of air fried chips good work boyd um the, the thing is though that we are we're told to look and wear clothes or look a certain way in the office and when i started to turn up wearing flip-flops comfortable trousers or, or dresses and not looking like I was about to turn up in a Vogue shoot. You know, I, I was like, oh, what are you wearing that for? Because I want to. Or where are your, sh where's your proper shoes? These are actually, compared to, you know, not wearing anything on my feet at all, they're still shoes. They may still be flip-flops, which possibly some people may not consider office wear, I do. Um, it's just, I don't know, I find it fascinating that we're, we're conditioned over all of those years to, to be told that we need to look a certain way and act a certain way. And the moment that we start to kind of take it back for ourselves, the more we realise that actually it was always there for us and we should have done it probably long ago. Mm. I can remember when I stopped wearing dresses. It was 1999. And I thought, I'll just wear jeans until someone tells me to stop. No one's ever told me to stop, so I'm still wearing jeans to work. It wasn't 2000, it was 2001. I remember now. I went on holiday. I did my, you know, six or seven months around the world with my best friend. We did uh, New Year in the Galapagos Islands. Came back. It would have been March or April of 2000. And my marketing director looked at me two weeks before I was meant to come back. I'm still in a pair of flip-flops and a summery dress and a big jumper because it's March in England. Um, and she's like, Annie, it's, it's the office. You're coming back next week. 
I expect you to look the part. I went, do you want me to come back or do you want me to wear good clothes? And she went, good point. You can just come back, wear what you like. So I did. <laughs> look the part. What is the part? No, it's a good point though, right? Because it's, it's, it's a construct that, that makes no sense. And I rocked up that first next week or, or whatever it was the first week I went back wearing flip-flops and a, a you know, kind of a, a normal skirt and a top and literally no one batted an eyelid. So, you know, it's, it's a, it requires a few people to perhaps be a little bit um, unusual or difficult or buck the rules. So I guess, you know, question for you, Gemma, what are, what are some of the ways that you've tried to buck the system and change the rules so that it, it makes a, it makes a difference for others coming behind you? I think, I think I'm a little bit the opposite of both of you in that um, I do wear dresses to work still. But the challenge that I've often had as a woman in academia and, and in, you know, with a kind of public, needing to kind of uh, perform publicly, uh, is I get told a lot, uh, make your voice deeper, make yourself bigger. And I don't know if you can tell on camera, I am a small person. Very How do you make yourself bigger? Oh, and so I can't, yeah, like, how do I take up more space? Well, I kind of physically can't. This is just my, my mass. This is as much as I have. And I even got to the point of nearly taking voice coaches, coaching to lower my voice. And I was like, you know what? And I, I think I was probably 30 at the time. And I was thinking, you know what? I can be small and squeaky and fucking kick ass. And everyone's just going to have to deal with that. And I, I cannot change the body I was born into to fit into society's expectations. Uh, you're just going to have to accept that that a small squeaky person can also be intelligent. The funniest moment I ever had about that was um, I got off stage giving a keynote once and this man came up to me and he said, I've read all of your work and I expected you to be bigger. <laughs> what? Honestly, big ideas, really big ideas. Yeah, I write like a big person. Like, what the fuck even is that? So. But but that that's that's kind of the stuff that we we fight against. Is is this thing of the default human is male? The default person has a, a lower tone of voice. You know, like think about Margaret Thatcher. She she deliberately dropped her voice so that she would sound more authoritative. Um, mm. You know. And we need to carve out our own space where we don't compromise on things like this is just what my voice sounds like. You just have to live with it. I think that's very healthy for us. Bad for men who don't like who don't like our voices. They don't like that we've got higher voices. Well, tough luck because that's how yeah. we talk. Yeah. About all that, I'm not entirely sure that's. Perhaps it's 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 not true on a macro level. You know, when you include the entirety of anyone's lives that you know I, I can't imagine that most guys would sit there and go I don't like the sound of a woman's voice that, that doesn't sound right because their mum has a mother's you know a woman's voice their grandmother their sisters their daughters it's it's the context of in a it's in an authority environment yeah mm. I don't like that you were on stage you know holding authority and yet you know you don't you don't have the um you don't have what I expect, you know, what I've been taught by society yeah, to you're expect. Not, you're not wearing a masculine style suit and you're not presenting, but, but why should we? We're, we're ourselves. Mm. I think it's yep. very healthy. 
Thank you. So that's probably something that I try to pass on to. Like, I have a lot of early career research and mentors and everything. Um, and, and I had, you know, one thing I will never, ever say to them is like, don't, don't change yourself and don't mm-hmm. change your femininity or how you want to present in the world for what you think will give you authority. Your ideas will prevail, you know, um, over and above your appearance. And that that's not what any of this should be about. Mm. And, and that's how it should be. That's our ideas should stand or fall on their own merits. That's the only merit there is. But, but, but it, is, it is a bit of a running joke whenever I give a keynote that one of my mates says, I thought you'd be bigger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm also, um, one would say, vertically challenged, Gemma. So we call you petite. I'm, I'm really quite small. Um, in in UK money, I'm five foot one. I don't know what that is in metres and centimetres, but it's not very much. And I remember back in the UK, my, my old boss, uh, my last boss in the UK was, he's six foot seven, I think. So we were quite the pair when we were walking around going to meetings because, you know, six foot seven and five foot one is, is, is quite a thing. And he would always say to me, you're the smartest person in the room. Uh, anybody who's asking a question, I'm going to defer it to you because you have all of the answers and I don't. And in the UK, we'd be fine. But when we went to Spain, it'd be very different because it's quite a masculine-oriented kind of um, construct, and, and particularly in corporate. So we would deliberately do a routine of when the questions got asked, they would be asked to Simon. And then Simon would literally not say a word and just look at me. And then I would answer the question. And then we would try and see how long it would take before the room realized that they needed to ask me the questions versus asking him. And it took a long time. So, you know, it, the, the, the scenarios that you're describing don't just exist in, in university land, they exist in far too many places, sadly. I, I, don't, I don't doubt it. I think one of the, um, the great gifts when I walk outside of university where, you know, in university, everyone is a doctor and everyone is a professor and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I work a lot with government and having the title from the university at, at least, not always, but sometimes, um, can really help with, with that, that authority challenge of being, you know, and I also look a fair bit younger than I am. So that, that can really help, I think, push back against that, um, at least in those contexts. So in ter- when you look for the future for yourself and for you know, the, the things that you're trying to champion for, what, are, what does the future look like for you, Gemma? I feel like that was, you know, we've all got a different question in 2020, sorry, different answer to that question in 2020. I mm-hmm. think, you know, my answer now is how do I keep um, creating pathways and how do I keep wonderful talented young academics and researchers in the system um so I've like my focus has shifted like a little bit away from where before I was a bit more like let's challenge the structures of institutions to more of a mother hen thing of like how do do I keep you all surviving in this 
um, which is, it's a bit unfortunate uh, because I think, you know, one of the things, you know, and not just in universities, you know, we've seen it everywhere, but the first thing that goes out the window when we don't, when we have a budget crisis, like what uh, COVID recession has brought on is equity goes out the window. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, part of the fight is to not let the equity measures of 20 years that we've fought for and get washed out of the drain in the first budget cut. Um, but also the the split of energy has shifted from like, right, like I can put a fair bit of attention on trying to change that system to how do I just keep, you know, 15, 20 ECRs from falling out of the system because they're brilliant and you know, the world can't afford to lose them from from research either. And I think I think that's a sort of a, an interesting angle because it's kind of separate from the institutional infrastructure to support diversity. It's actually what's happening in their homes now. So yeah. you know, if they have if they have children, then if they're female, all of the childcare is probably mostly falling on them, and the homeschooling and all of that stuff is inequitably falling on on the women and that's going to be real a real problem for their research outputs and stuff and you know trying to find a way to navigate that because you can't just solve that very easily because it's it's a covid problem covid related problem someone on twitter said um you know if i could do anything you know i'd love to just give all of my all of my staff a housekeeper and that's how I feel too. Like you're, you're probably both experiencing it too. And I'm sure people in lots and lots of industries are where you're responsible for a cohort of people as, as their kind of their manager. Um, and, and you want to take away all the stress and distress about their daily lives and their careers in this situation. But you're really, really limited in what you can actually do. Um, I would love to give them all a housekeeper. I'd love someone to give to me a housekeeper to get That's through this. But, <laughs> but we can't we can't do that. Um, and so it's been a kind of, yeah. And that's, you know, I don't know how much uh, you want to focus in on, on just the academic environment. But, you know, I think a really serious question that I'm asking myself and I wonder if other, other academics are asking themselves is um, what, is it morally responsible at this point to take on PhD students who want an academic career if we're, if we're just kind of, you know, going to let them fall off a cliff? Um, and I, I don't have an answer to that, but that's something that I've been grappling with um, over maybe the last sort of three or four months that we've really seen the, the very targeted ideological attack on the, on the sector is, um, you know, do I hang on to the ones that are, I've got under my wings at the moment and I think I can look after them? Um, and, yeah, what do we do from here? Well, you know, higher education is very much under attack at the moment and I think we as a society are going to need to ask some really hard questions about whether or not we really value the future and education's role in innovation or not um, as a country. You know, as a country we've gotten we've gotten by because we're lucky and I think we're we're at risk of destroying a whole higher education sector, the whole university sector will be reshaped and, and it won't be what we knew it to be. And, and we run the risk of, of not having the disinterested research that, that turns up a gem, all of those gems that we value were 
typically come from just someone's passion. They weren't funded for it. You know, they, they've just got a job that leaves, gives them lab space to do what they're interested in and they can do it. And I think we, we run the risk of killing that off and trying to make job machines. And look, I, you know, I, I've, I, I'm part of that process right now, right, where um, I've had to say to my research team, I need you to hate this word. This is the 2020 word. I need you to pivot to income generation. Um, like I promise, I promise we'll get back to ideas and to, um, you know, writing papers and, and, and all of that beautiful, I call it creative work in academia. But right now I need to make sure all of you stay employed. Um, and it, it kind of breaks my heart a bit to have to do that. But here we are. Mm, yeah, well, 2020 was not one what any of us expected. No, no. Nope. Not at all. Now, fine, well, one of my final questions for you, um, Gemma, is, is kind of how did you get into academia in the first place? I was born into it. It's not a very interesting answer. I'm the child of academics, um, but I am the black sheep. So my father is a mathematical, pure, um, pure, math pure mathematician and physicist. Uh, my mother was an economist and um, my sister is a roboticist. Uh, so I'm the social science black sheep. But so you have yes, the bills. It's good to see. In my own little way, but only because like all of those genes that involve numbers, they just skipped me completely. <laughs> um, so yes, that's what brought me to academia. And then what took me to writing, I think a little bit outside of academia is I started to get a little bit bored of being an academic and, and thought I needed to grow a, a second career at the same time, which was again, pre-COVID where such things were a luxury we could pursue. And how, how did you publish your first book? How did that happen? Um, it's really interesting, right? Like, and, and people also ask, how long did it take you to write your book? And I say, it took me 20 years and 20 days. I actually wrote my book very, very quickly. Not a revision, but wrote the book very quickly. And I, all right, are you ready for the, the true, honest story of how it happened? It's quite mm -hmm. funny. It's yeah, kicking around. I was kicking around. I had this manuscript and I put it away for a while because, it, you know, it's a memoir. It's a lot of personal stuff in it. And I was like, do I really want to release this into the world and my colleagues and everything? And um, I had a, a really devastating second trimester miscarriage and I was absolutely off my face on painkillers afterwards. And I just wrote to a literary agent and went, like, and my, my email to her, I can't believe she read the book because it was so full of typos. I was so high on painkillers. <laughs> and she read the book and she was like, this is fucking phenomenal. And within two weeks, it went into a, a bidding war between five of the biggest publishers in the world. Um, so it just went from like zero to insanity really, really wow. quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so probably maybe a bit of an unexpected thing, but... Um, a friend of mine said to me, you know, I think that was your subconscious leading mm. you down the right path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that's how often how the first book goes. It takes 20 years and then suddenly it, it goes off. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. But, hey, painkillers. How good are painkillers? <laughs> don't knock them, especially in 2020. So sad. We don't judge in 2020. <laughs> so, Gemma, when does the book come out? 
It came out this week. This week? Yeah, yeah. Right, well, we'll put a link to it. We'll put a link to it in um, the show notes. Um, Can you tell me that. Please tell us what it's called. It's called No Matter Our Wreckage, and it's published by Alan and Unwin. Awesome. We will put we will put a link in the bottom of the show notes. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. And thanks, Annie. No worries. I'm looking forward to reading the book, Gemma. Oh, yeah, thank you. like to be read list. I could stay all evening and talk to you both. Really, we're done already. <laughs> we really enjoyed having you on. Um, thanks, everybody, for watching. Please don't forget to like us and leave a good review because that would be nice and we'll be back shortly. Thank you.